Section 19 of Revelations of a Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. Revelations of a Wife by Adele Garrison. Chapter 19 Lillian Underwood's Story. Well, I suppose we might as well get it over with. Lillian Underwood and I sat in the big tapestry chairs on either side of the glowing fire in her library. She had instructed Betty, her maid, to bring her neither caller nor telephone message until our conference should be ended. The two doors leading from the room were locked and the heavy velvet curtains drawn over them, making us absolutely secure from intrusion. I suppose so. The answer was banal enough but it was physically impossible for me to say anything more. My throat was parched, my tongue thick, and I clenched my hands tightly in my lap to prevent their trembling. Mrs. Underwood gave me a searching glance, then reached over and laid her warm, firm hand over mine. "'See here, my child,' she said gently, "'this will never do.' Before I tell you the story, there is something you must be sure of. Look at me. No matter what else you may think of me, do you believe me to be capable of telling you a falsehood when I make a statement to you upon my honor? Her eyes met mine fairly and squarely. Mrs. Underwood has wonderful eyes, blue-gray, expressive. They shone out from the atrocious mask of makeup which she always uses, and I unreservedly accepted the message they carried to me. I am sure you would not deceive me, I returned quickly, and meant it. Thank you. Then, before I begin my story, I am going to assure you of one thing upon my honor. She spoke slowly, impressively, her eyes never wavering from mine. You have heard rumors about Dicky and me. You will hear things from me today which will show you that the rumors were justified in part, and yet I want you to believe me when I tell you that there is nothing in any past association of your husband and myself which would make either of us ashamed to look you straight in the eyes. I believed her. I would challenge anyone in the world to look into those clear, honest eyes and doubt their owner's truth. There was a long minute when I could not speak. I had not known the full measure of what I feared until her words lifted the burden from my soul. Then I had my moment, recognized it, rose to it. I leaned forward and returned the earnest gaze of the woman opposite to me. "'Dear Mrs. Underwood,' I said, "'why tell me any more? I am perfectly satisfied with what you have just told me. Be sure that no rumors will trouble me again.' Her clasp of my hand tightened until my rings hurt my flesh. Into her face came a look of triumph. "'I knew it!' she said jubilantly. I could have banked on you. You're a big woman, my dear, and I believe we are going to be real friends. She loosened her clasp of my hands, leaned back in her chair, 
and looked for a long meditative moment at the fire. "'You cannot imagine how much easier your attitude makes the telling of my story,' she began finally. "'But I just assured you that there was no need for the telling,' I interrupted. "'I know, but it is your right to know, and it will be far better if you are put in possession of the facts. It is an ugly story. I think I had better tell you the worst of it first. I marveled at the look that swept across her face. Bitter pain and humiliation were written there so plainly that I looked away. Then my eyes fell upon her strong, white, shapely hands, which were resting upon the arms of the chair. They were strained, bloodless, where the fingers gripped the tapestried surface. When she spoke, her voice was low, hurried, abashed. Seven years ago, she said, my first husband sued me for divorce and named Dickie as a co-respondent. I sprang from my seat. No, 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 I cried, hardly knowing what I said. Surely not. I remember reading the old story when you were married to Mr. Underwood three years ago. I've always admired your work so much that I've read every line about you, and surely Dickie's name wasn't mentioned. I would have remembered it when I met him, I know. There, there, she was on her feet beside me, and with a gentle yet compelling hand put me back in my chair. Her voice had the same tone a mother would use to a grieving child. Dickie's name wasn't mentioned when the story was printed the last time, because at the time the divorce was granted, Mr. Morton withdrew the accusation that he had made against him. Why? The question left my lips almost without volition. I sensed something tragic, full of meaning for me, behind the statement she had made. She did not answer me for a minute or two. I can only answer the question on your word of honor not to tell Dicky what I am going to tell you, she said. It is something he suspects, but which I would never confirm. She paused expectantly. Upon honor, of course, I answered simply. She rose and moved swiftly toward one of the built-in bookcases. I saw that she put her hand upon one of the sections and pulled upon it. To my astonishment it moved toward her, and I saw that behind it was a cleverly constructed wall safe. She turned the combination, opened the door, and took from the safe an inlaid box, which, as she came toward me, I saw was made of rare old woods. She sat down again in the big chair, and looked at the box musingly, tenderly. I leaned forward expectantly. Again I had the sense of tragedy near me. Drawing the key from her dress, she opened the box and took from it a miniature, gazed at it a minute, and then handed it to me. "'Oh, Mrs. Underwood!' I exclaimed. "'How exquisite!' The miniature was of the most beautiful child I had ever seen, a tiny girl of perhaps two years. She stood poised, as if running to meet one, her baby arms outstretched. It was a picture to delight or bake a mother's heart. 
I looked up from the miniature to the face of the woman who had handed it to me. Yes, she answered my unspoken query, my little daughter, my only child. She is the price which I paid for Dicky's immunity from the scandal which the unjust man that I called my husband brought upon me. My first impulse was one of horror-stricken sympathy for her. Then came the reaction. A flaming jealousy enveloped me from head to foot. How she must have loved Dicky to do this for him! The thought beat upon my brain like a sledgehammer. Don't think that, my dear, for it isn't true. I had not spoken, but with her almost uncanny ability to divine the thoughts of other people, she had fathomed mine. I was always fond of Dicky, but I never was in love with him. Then why did you make such a sacrifice? I stammered. Why, there was absolutely no other way she said, opening her wonderful eyes in amazement that I had not at once grasped her point of view. Dicky was absolutely innocent of any wrongdoing, but through a combination of circumstances of which I shall tell you, my husband had gathered a show of evidence which would have won him the divorce if it had been presented. He bargained with me, I to give up all claim to the baby, he to withdraw Dicky's name and all other charges except that of desertion. Thus Dicky was saved a scandal which would have followed and hampered him all his life, and I was spared the fastening of a shameful verdict upon me. Of course, everybody who read about the case and did not know me believed me guilty anyway, but my friends stood by me gallantly, and that part of it is all right. But every time I look at that baby face, I am tempted to wish that I had let honor, the writing of Dicky, everything go by the boards, and had taken my chance of having her, even if it were only part of the time. Her voice was rough, uneven, as she finished speaking, but that was the only evidence of the emotion which I knew must have her stretched upon the rack. Right there I capitulated to Lillian Underwood. Always, through my dislike and distrust of her, there had struggled an admiration which would not down, even when I thought I had most cause to fear her. But this revelation of the real bigness of the woman caught my allegiance and fixed it. She had sacrificed the thing which was most precious to her to keep her ideal of honor unsullied. I felt that I could never have made a similar sacrifice, but I mentally saluted her for her power to do it. I realized, too, the reason for Dicky's deference to Mrs. Underwood, which had often puzzled and sometimes angered me. Once, when she had given him a raking over the temper he displayed toward me in her presence, he had said, "'You know I couldn't get angry at you, no matter what you said.' I owe you too much. I had wondered at the time what it was that my husband owed Mrs. Underwood. The riddle was solved for me at last. I am not an impetuous woman, and I do not know how I ever mustered up courage to do it, but the sight of Lillian Underwood's face as she looked at her baby picture was too much for me. 
without any conscious volition on my part i found my arms around her and her face pressed against my shoulder i expected a storm of grief for i knew the woman had been holding herself in with an iron hand but only a few convulsive movements of her shoulders betrayed her emotion and when she raised her face to mine her eyes were less tear-bedewed than my own something stirred me to quick questioning oh is there a chance of your having her again i am always hoping for it she answered quietly when her father married again several years ago that was before my marriage to harry i hoped against hope that he would give her to me for he knew the hound knew better than anybody else that all his vile charges were false her eyes blazed her voice was strident her hands clasped and unclasped then as if a string had been loosened she sank back in her chair again but he would not give her to me she went on dully and he could not even if he would for his mother who has the child is old and devoted to her it would kill her to take marion away from her you saw my pink room she demanded abruptly i nodded the memory of that rose-colored nest and the look in my hostess's eyes when on my other visit she had said she had prepared the room for a young girl was yet vivid i spent weeks preparing it for her when i heard of her father's remarriage she said when i finally realized that i could not have her i lay ill for weeks in it on my recovery i vowed that no one else but she or i should ever sleep there i have another bedroom where i sleep most of the time but sometimes i go in there and spend the night and pretend that i have her little body snuggled up close to me just as it used to be the crackling of the logs in the grate was the only sound to be heard for many minutes with her elbow resting on the arm of her chair her chin cupped in her hand her whole body leaning toward the warmth of the fire she sat gazing into the leaping flames as if she were trying to read in them the riddle of the future i patiently waited on her mood that she would open her heart to me further i knew but i did not wish to disturb her with either word or movement i might as well begin at the beginning there was a note in her voice that all at once made me see the long years of suffering which had been hers only the beginning is so commonplace that it lacks interest it is the record of a very mediocre stenographer with aspirations that she was speaking of herself her tone told me but i was genuinely surprised Mrs. Underwood was the last woman in the world one would picture as holding down a stenographer's position. I can't remember when I didn't have in the back of my brain the idea of learning to draw, she went on, but it took years and years of uphill work and saving to get a chance. I was an orphan with nobody to care whether I lived or died and nothing but my own efforts to depend on but i stuck to it working in the daytime and studying evenings and holidays till at last i began to get a foothold 
and then when i had enough to put by to risk it i went to paris her voice was as matter-of-fact as if she were describing a visit to the family butcher-shop but i visualized the busy plucky years with their reward of paris as if i had been a spectator of them of course by the time i got there i was almost old enough to be the mother or at least the elder sister of most of the boys and girls i met and i had learned life and experience in a good hard school some of the youngsters got the habit of coming to me with all their troubles fancied or real i made some stanch friends in those days but never a stancher truer one than dicky graham tell me dear girl when you were teaching those history classes did any of your boy pupils fall in love with you i answered her with an embarrassed little laugh her question called up memories of shy glances gifts of flowers and fruit boyish confidences all the things which fall to the lot of any teacher of boys well then you will understand me when i tell you that in the studio days in paris dicky imagined himself quite in love with me there was something in her tone and manner which took all the sting out of her words for me all the jealousy and real concern which i had spent on this old attachment of my husband for mrs underwood vanished as i listened to her she might have been dicky's mother speaking of his early and injudicious fondness for green apples i shall always be proud of the way i managed dicky that time her voice still held the amused maternal note it's so easy for an older woman to spoil a boy's life in a case like that if she's despicable enough to do it but you see i was genuinely fond of dicky and yet not the least bit in love with him and i was able without his guessing it to keep the management of the affair in my own hands so when he woke up as boys always do to the absurdity of the idea there was nothing in his recollections of me to spoil our friendship then there came the early days of my struggle to get a foothold in new york in my line there were thousands of others like me six or seven of the strugglers had been my friends in paris we formed a sort of circle for offense and defense dicky called it settled down near each other and for months we worked and played and starved together when one of us sold anything we all feasted while it lasted i tell you my dear those were strenuous times but they had a zest of their own i saw more of the picture she was revealing than she thought i did i could guess that the one who most often sold anything was the woman who was so calmly telling me the story of those early hardships i knew that the dominant member of that little group of stragglers the one who heartened them all the one who would unhesitatingly go hungry herself if she thought a comrade needed it was lillian underwood and then i spoiled my life i married don't misunderstand me she hastened to say i do not mean that i believe all marriages are failures i believe tremendously in married happiness 
but I think I must be one of the women who are temperamentally unfitted to make any man happy. Her tone was bitter, self-accusing. You cannot make me believe that, I said stoutly. I would rather believe that you were very unwise in your choice of husbands. She laughed ironically. Well, we will let it go at that. At any rate, there is only one word that describes my first marriage. It was hell from start to finish. The look on her face told me she was not exaggerating. It was a look only graven by intense suffering. When the baby came, my feeling for Will changed. He had worn me out. The love I had given him I lavished upon the child. Will's mother came to live with us. She had been drifting around miserably before, and while she failed me at the time of the divorce, yet she was a tower of strength to me during the baby's infancy. I was very fond of her, and I think she sincerely liked me. But Will, her only son, could always make her believe black was white, as I later found out to my sorrow. With the vanishing of the hectic love I had felt for Will, things went more smoothly with me. I worked like a slave to keep up the expenses of the home and to lay by something for the baby's future. My husband was away so much that the boys and girls gradually came back to something like the old term of intimacy. I never gave the matter of propriety a thought. My mother-in-law, a baby, and a maid were certainly chaperones enough. Afterward, I found out that my husband, equipped with his legal knowledge, had set all manner of traps for me, had bribed my maid, and diabolically managed to twist the most innocent visits of the boys of the old crowd to our home to his own evil meanings. Then came the crash— Dicky came in one Sunday afternoon, and I saw at once that he was really ill. You know his carelessness. He had let a cold go until he was as near pneumonia as he could well be. A sleet storm was raging outside, and when Dicky, after shivering before the fire, started to go back to his studio, Will's mother, who liked Dicky immensely, joined me in insisting that he must not go out at all but to bed. Dicky was really too ill to care what we did with him, so we got him into bed, and I took care of him for two or three days, until he was well enough to leave. Of course, the greater part of his care fell on me, for Will's mother was old and not strong. I am not going to tell you the accusations which my unspeakable husband made against me, or the affidavits which the maid was bribed to sign about Dicky and me. You can guess. Worst of all, Will's mother turned against me, not because of anything she had observed, but simply because her son told her I was guilty. I never would have thought it of you, Lillian she said to me with the tears streaming down her wrinkled old face. I never saw anything out of the way, but of course Will wouldn't lie, and I loved you so. Poor old woman, those last few words of affection made it easier for me to give the baby up to her when the time came. She idolizes Marion. 
she gives her the best of care and i do not think she will teach her to hate me as will would but there has never been a moment since i kissed marian and gave her into the arms of her grandmother that i have not known exactly how she was treated she said i have made it my business to know and i have paid liberally for the knowledge you see about the time of the divorce mr morton had a legacy left him so that life has been easy for him financially his mother had always kept a maid every servant she has had has been in my employ there has scarcely been a day since i lost my baby that from some unobserved place i have not seen her in her walks i know every line of her face every curve of her body every trick of movement and expression i shall know how to win her love when the time comes never fear her voice was dauntless but her face mirrored the anguish that must be her daily companion one thing about her recital jarred upon me this paying of servants this furtive espionage was not in keeping with the high resolve that had led the mother to keep her word to the man who had ruined her life and yet i dared not judge her in her place i could not imagine what i would have done one thing i knew never again would i doubt lillian underwood the ghost of the past romance between my husband and the woman before me was laid for all time never to trouble me again remembering the sacrifice she had made for dicky considering the gallant fight against circumstances she had waged since her girlhood i felt suddenly unworthy of the friendship she had so warmly offered me i turned to her trying to find words which should fittingly express my sentiments but she forestalled me with the kaleidoscopic change of manner that bewildered me enough of horrors she said springing up and giving a little expressive shake of her shoulders as if she were throwing a weight from them i'm going to give you some luncheon oh please i put up a protesting hand but she was across the room and pressing a bell before i could stop her i thought i understood the grave of her past life was closed again she had opened it because she wished me to know the truth concerning the old garbled stories about herself and dicky having told me everything she had pushed the grisly thing back into its sepulchre again and had sealed it she would not refer to it again one thing puzzled me something to which she had not referred why had she married harry underwood why after the terrible experience of her first marriage had she risked linking her life with an unstable creature like the man who was now her husband i put all questionings aside however and tried to meet her brave gay mood End of chapter nineteen